Well, I'd like to pass on a very warm welcome to uh, everyone here this evening. It is online as well, so with people tuning in, a big welcome to everybody to our anniversary service. Um, especially a big welcome to Dan Jarvis, who's our preacher this evening. We're grateful for you coming middle of the week and uh, spending time uh, ministering to us. Um, have some connections with Dan and the churches he's been involved with uh, over the years at Bradford and Avon and uh, Carey uh, Baptist Church in Reading and Amon Park in Twickenham. Uh, but uh, Dan is now a pastor of a church in uh, Hayes Lane in Bromley and uh, not quite so far away now. So it's been nice to be able to have him here to preach to us. With a name like Jarvis, it sets a few people going as to whether he's got any relations to Leslie Jarvis, who was somebody who often preached here in previous years. So just to save 20 of us asking him, um, I think that's his great uncle, his great uncle, but we're glad to have Dan here in his own right, uh, even though many of us would have known of Leslie and have fond memories of Leslie and his ministry here. I will mention that there is refreshments after the service tonight, um, so please feel free to stay on. It's different, it's special, it's anniversary service. We've got cheese and biscuits and some homemade cakes, so feel free to go through to the uh, Sunday school room, to the hall room afterwards. Um, it is an anniversary. Um, we haven't made so much of uh, history in, in the past when we meet for the anniversary service. Perhaps I should have done more so. It's our 191st anniversary, as I calculate it. And I'm just going to give uh, one or two little historical comments after the first hymn. But it's a good day for us to be mindful of God's faithfulness and kindness to us as a church and so we're going to begin this evening with a hymn of praise so that we can express that together so we're going to start with the song praise my soul the king of heaven to his feet your tribute bring
So, just a little history at this point, not too prolonged, but uh, hopefully helpful. Um, I've been reading uh, this book this week. It's uh, 90 years old, so I treat it delicately. Uh, we've got a, a number of them still left, actually, uh, and it's a, a, a book about the history of Forest Fold, and it was written on its centenary. So it was written in 1932, about the first hundred years of God's work here. Um, well, I, I won't rehearse uh, the remarkable way in which uh, a church here was, was planted. Um, John Hitchcock did a children's talk summarising some of the history uh, a couple of years ago, which was very helpful, and some of you might be familiar with that. But what actually struck me is not, not uh, there were things that struck me in the book, but uh, what did strike me was a few things that were said in the preface. So I'm sorry if it sounds a bit boring to read a preface of a history book, but there were a few things that struck me in that as relevant. Uh, the, the preface was written by a, a G. Rose. Um, I don't know for sure, but I heard of a George Rose being referred to in the past, so that sounds as though that's a, a strong contender that's a George Rose, and I've got a few nods. There we go. So it's George Rose. He wrote a preface to this book, which was written by a previous pastor here, Stanley Delves, about the first hundred years here. And, uh, yeah, well, what was on his mind as he had read uh, of the first hundred years here and reflected on it? Well, there were, there were three things that struck me in, in, in what he wrote in the preface. One of them was a thankfulness for God's work. So he says quite early in the preface, talked about God ordaining a cause of truth, that's the way they often used to put it, should be planted in such an unpromising place as Crowborough a hundred years ago. And he says, the same gracious hand that planted the cause at Forest Fold has maintained it by his spirit and power for a hundred years. And this account is an Ebenezer stone. As you know, the Old Testament picture there, the Ebenezer stone set up with the inscription, hitherto hath the Lord helped us. I thought if he was struck by God's faithfulness, power, kindness and goodness over the first hundred years, well we've got an extra 91 to add to that, so we should feel similarly thankfulness for God's work. A second thing in the preface that struck me was a concern for Bible truth. Concern for Bible truth. He carries on in uh, what he says, desire that the God of all grace will still be with those who now worship there, both minister and people, that he will not leave them or forsake them so that they may hand down the unimpaired truth to the succeeding generation who the Lord may raise up. And that truth has been passed on to that succeeding generation and several others since he wrote this preface. And he also comments on uh, uh, the pastor who filled up quite a lot of those first hundred years, a man called Ebenezer Littleton, who was pastor for 52 years. You may know that in our history we've got one pastor who was pastor for 52 years and another one who was pastor for 54 years. 
after each other. I, I, I can't imagine there's anything similar elsewhere in the nation, but I, I stand to be corrected on that. It's a, an unusual continuity of long pastorates. And in talking of Mr. Littleton, who held the pastorate for 52 years, much esteemed in his day and generation, the church at the present are very favoured that the Lord granted to them in his mercy, a pastor after his own heart, who ministers to them in loving faithfulness, not shunning to declare to them the whole counsel of God, not keeping back anything that is profitable for them. So, truth being taught then and uh, giving thanks to God for that and I trust that's been the, the same since, biblical truth being taught in the life and place of the church here. So, thankfulness, truth, and uh, the other thing that struck me from the preface was the, the blessing of unity. He says elsewhere, talks about the situation here at Forest Fold then, and it shows the unity existing between the brethren, the brothers, the believers. Happy would it be, he says, if this was a rule among those who love our Lord Jesus in sincerity, Truly it may be said of Forest Fold and the Branch Chapel, it's a little chapel in town that was uh, carried on for some years, and other localities where preaching places have existed, behold how good and how pleasant a thing it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. So after a hundred years, somebody reflecting felt that there had been a lot of unity and love at Forest Fold. And in God's kindness and goodness, I think that's, that has continued and it has been a, a flavour for so much, certainly not all, obviously, but for so much of the life here. And uh, may it continue. Thankfulness, truth, unity from that history. Well, from the original group, which met in uh, 1832 and formed a church 12 years later, the Lord has added through the decades of the 19th century, 20th century, the 21st century. Uh, we have uh, 107 members, baptised believing members as part of the church now. It's carried on. And I was just thinking about the way in which God's work carries on and when our different members have been added. And so as I looked through the current members and when they joined, I thought I'd pick out the first of each decade that I could, just to remind you of God's work continuing. Our longest member, uh, Betty Sharp, joined in the 1950s, that decade, 1958. In the 60s, the first member, still current member, is Steve Sharp. 70s, Gwen Cassam is the first name down in 1971 as joining. In the 80s, uh, Jenny Baldwin is the, the first name still on our membership list. In the 1990s, well four were added in January and the first name on the list is Alan Hare. In the 2000s, Harriet Young was the first. In the 2010s, uh, Keith Gilbert being transferred. Flory as well, obviously. And in the 2020s, January, Tom Jarman. 
So, God's work continuing through that time. Much reason for thanksgiving. So just a little history to lead us into praying together now. Let's, let's pray to the Lord. Oh Lord our God, we come to you, the eternal God, the majestic God, the awesome God, the God over history, the God of grace and God of truth. And we praise you that you planted a church here in this spot those many years ago. And we praise you for those early decades where there was a love for truth, a love for people, a unity, so that there was much to give thanks for in what happened. We give thanks for the way in which the church was formed and the way in which the gospel went out. We give thanks for the way in which so many, many times the word of God was opened and preached from and prayed over and sung about and talked about. We give thanks that there was a genuine love between believers as you had worked in their hearts and stirred up a love in accordance with your character. We give thanks that real lives were affected and changed by the work of your spirit and that that happened in those first hundred years. And praise God, it's happened in another 91 years since then. And we rejoice in that fact and in your faithfulness and in your kindness and in your patience with us. And we rejoice that you have added many to the church. And we've named some and it's just rejoiced our heart as we think of those individuals. We love them as brothers and sisters in the family of God here. But there are many others worked on by your wonderful grace. And we praise you for that. And we pray that as we go forward as a church, Lord, that you might be gracious to us, that we may not squander the privileges we have, we may not depart from the truth, we may not sour ourselves in bickering, ill spirit, but that it may be a place where there is peace, grace, love, blessing, truth, addition, unity, to the glory of your name, for coming years and decades and generations, if you spare us. So we come with our praises and prayer in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we've got another song that we're going to sing now, and then we're going to have the reading. Steve Sharp's going to read for us from Ephesians 4, which is relevant to the subject that Dan's going to be preaching on, which is church more than a meeting, church more than a meeting. And in the light of the importance of truth in that little histor history snippet, um, we're going to sing together, it's called the Reformation hymn, actually it's a fairly new hymn, but it just reflects on some of the key principles of the Reformation, of which of course is so central is the solid ground of the word of God for our belief and practice. 
We have sung it once or twice, but not for a little, while, a little time, but I'm hoping that we'll be able to pick it up as we sing and encourage ourselves in these truths. Your word alone is solid ground, the mighty rock on which we build. Well, our reading tonight is Ephesians chapter 4, which, uh, God willing, Dan will be expounding to us later, is to be found on page 977 in the Church Bibles. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, 
urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when, part, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In the futility of their minds, they are darkened by their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to the hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, greedy, to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbour, for we are members one of another, be angry and do not sin. 
Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupt, corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for the building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamour and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So reads the word of God. Well, shall we join together in prayer again? Let's pray. Oh Lord, we have uh, remembered something of our history and we've given thanks for that. But we praise you that uh, the Christian faith is not stuck in the past. We realise that you are the living Lord and that your word is a living word and that your people were described as living stones. And so we pray for that liveliness to be felt by us in our current situation as we go forward from our current situation. And we give thanks that this evening that living word can be proclaimed. Lord, we've uh, read a chapter with many things in and uh, uh, such helpful teaching for us, for our health and our relationships as a group of people. And as Dan comes to preach on this theme from uh, that chapter maybe and others too, and brings to bear on us teaching from your word on this theme, we pray it would do us good. We pray it would cement us in a good way in understanding your truth. We pray it will lead to a, a spring of responsiveness in our hearts to what we hear. We pray that it will shape us as we go forward as a community together. Protect us from evil. Protect us from ourselves. Forgive us our sins. Graciously bless us this evening and onwards. Do be with him as he speaks to us. And do bless as well uh, the church that he comes from there in Bromley that they may know much of your rich encouragement and blessing in the different aspects of their ministry, their outreach, their relationships, their life together. And this we all pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we're going to sing together one more song before Dan comes up and preaches to us. And it's very much on the theme of this evening, which is the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word.
Well, good evening. It's good to be with you this evening. Thank you for your invitation to come. Thank you for your warm welcome. Uh, it's great to be able to celebrate with you in God's goodness to you over 191 years. We've got some catching up to do back there in Bromley. Uh, I want us to think together about uh, this topic of the church. Now, I wonder, uh, when I say that word church, what sort of thing springs to mind? I can imagine in our society, if you were to say the word church, the vast majority of people would think of bells and smells, choirs and spires. Probably most people would think of as something that's a bit dull and dry and old-fashioned, something that your grandparents do or your, your parents do and they drag you along every now and again. Uh, we, we, we do come with all sorts of different experiences of church, don't we? I grew up in an independent Baptist church in Wiltshire. I moved from there to a church in Reading and I spent six years in the FIEC, the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches. And now I'm at a church that belongs to the Association of Grace Baptist Churches Southeast, which is the catchiest name we could come up with. But in our church in Bromley, we have a variety of people. We have church who, uh, people who come to our church from Pentecostal churches, some from Anglican churches, some from strict Baptist churches, some from Brethren churches, some from uh, the Presbyterian, some from Salvation Army, some from Congregational churches, some from Baptist Union churches, and I've probably missed a few out as well. I don't know about you, you may be a little bit more homogenous, uh, maybe you've all been here all of your lives, I'm not sure. But with all of our different backgrounds, all of our different experiences, all of our different expectations, tonight I want us to look together at what the Bible says about the church. And that, after all, should be our greatest priority, shouldn't it? To be shaped by God's word in the way that we think about the church. And the New Testament gives us a number of metaphors or images uh, as we think about the church. I've made a list of them so that we can see them uh, for ourselves. Uh, we are called a body, a family, a household, a bride, a temple, a priesthood, a pillar, and a flock. And there's probably a few others that I've missed out there as well. And with each of those different images, there is something that we learn about who we are. It teaches us something about who we ought to be with a flock. And so we ought to follow our chief shepherds. We are a family. And so we should love our brothers and sisters in the faith. We're a pillar. And so we should lift high the Lord Jesus for all to see. This evening, I want us really just to dip our toe into three uh, of those words uh, and to think about uh, the way that we ought to function as a church. We really can only dip our toe in uh, tonight. So we're going to see three things. Uh, we are the church of Christ, we are the body of Christ, and we are the bride of Christ. So let's think firstly with the church of Christ. 
one of the most common words that the Bible uses to describe the church is church. It's a Greek word. You might know the Greek word if you've ever been uh, over to Spain and you've looked for a church. You've probably been looking for eglaise, which is from the Greek word ecclesia. It appears in the New Testament almost 120 times. Uh, You probably even saw one on your page uh, in Ephesians. If you have Ephesians 4 still open from our reading a moment ago, the, the verse previous to our reading, so chapter 3, verse 21, to him be the glory in the church, in the ecclesia. Usually that Greek word is translated in our English Bibles as church, but sometimes there's a different word that's used. Occasionally it's assembly, sometimes it's congregation. Sometimes this Greek word ecclesia isn't even talking about a church. So, for instance, in Acts chapter 19, Paul is in Ephesus. He's been preaching about the Lord Jesus, and Demetrius, the silversmith, is very upset because he's losing business for his idol-making factory. And so Demetrius calls his friends together, and they gather a mob, and they almost start a riot in Ephesus. That word that is used to describe this mob is ecclesia, assembly. What on earth do a mob and a church have in common? How is it that Luke can use the same Greek word to talk about a riotous mob as he can to talk about God's people? Well, I think there's something very clear that they have in common, isn't there? They have assembled together. They are a group of people gathering with a united purpose. When we hear that word assembly, I can imagine we usually think of the school assembly. Perhaps you don't have very fond memories of school assemblies, sitting on uncomfortable benches, listening to long-winded rants from the head teacher, a child behind you digging their knee into your back. Church is not supposed to be like that, is it? We hope. But there is something about the school assembly that does ring true for the church because it's a gathering together, isn't it? It's bringing together all of the children in the school to listen to this teaching from the head teacher. Gathering together, bringing together. As a church, we gather, we assemble. Just like you assemble a piece of furniture, you're bringing together all of these different parts. As a church, as an assembly, we bring together our different parts. We gather as God's people. This is essential to the DNA of what it means to be a church, isn't it? This is fundamental to the fabric of church. This is what church, the word, really means. Uh, I know of a pastor who, during the lockdown, he refused to call any of their Zoom meetings or YouTube videos church. In fact, he made a point of insisting in most of their YouTube videos, this is not church. Uh, I don't know what you did, during the coronavirus lockdown, but in that period,
period where we weren't actually able to gather on Sundays, we lost something, didn't we? We lost something essential to what it means to be a church, an assembly that didn't assemble, a, a gathering that couldn't gather, a church that couldn't church, if we use it as a verb. And that's why the writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, verse 24 and 25, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. Can you imagine a tin of tomato soup that contained no tomato soup? Can you imagine a bookshop that never sold any books? Can you imagine a church where the people don't show up? Unfortunately, I can imagine that last one. But it should be completely alien to us. Because gathering, meeting together like this, like you do on a Sunday, this is the essence of what it means to be a church. I said a moment ago that a church, a mob, an assembly, they gather with a particular focus, a particular goal in mind. So why is it that we, we gather? Why is it that the church assembles? I think Paul summarizes the focus of our meetings, our gatherings perfectly in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus Christ, the savior of sinners, his sacrificial death, on the cross, whatever else you do in your services, you sing, you pray, you read, you preach, you do things during the week, kids clubs, evangelistic activities, whatever else you do, the center and the focal point of everything is him. He is the reason we gather. He is the one we come to worship. A church is a gathering where our focus is Christ crucified. However, that's not all. A church is so much more than a group of people who gather once, twice, three times a week, and then just disperse into a vapor for the rest of the week. Gathering is essential, but there's so much more to what it means to be a church. So let's think secondly, we are the body of Christ. Let's read again those words that we had in Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Rather than just being a little gathering on a Sundays and for the rest of the week we all go our separate ways, a common picture through the New Testament is that the church is a body. And the language of body is very clear in those verses that we've just read, isn't it? Paul makes it abundantly clear to us that we are joined together. We are held together by these ligaments. A body 
does not just assemble once a week and then disassemble for the rest of the time. No, it's bound together, isn't it? You might meet two friends and they are so close that they are almost inseparable. Wherever they go, they're always together. And even when they have to go their separate ways, they're still texting each other, they're still calling each other, they're sending each other pictures to keep each other up to date. You might say of these two friends, they are joined at the hip. Well, the imagery that the Bible uses for the church is even closer than that. It's not just two friends joined at the hip. No, our relationship to one another is as close as one person, as close as the hip is to the leg, as close as my hand is to my arm, as close as my head is to my neck. We are a body. Now just notice in these verses where the connection to one another comes from. What is it or, or who is it that binds us together like a body? Is it that we all get along like the best of friends? We all love each other so much. Not necessarily. Is it because we all agree on every part of Christian teaching? No, definitely not. So what is it or who is it that holds us together with all of our differences, all of our diversity, all of our quirkiness? Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Jesus is the head of the body. And it's from him and because of him that the rest of us hold together. For some of you here, I mean, I, I can say this, I can get away with this because I don't know anything about you. But for some of you, I can imagine you might not have anything to do with someone else sat in this room. You might be from completely different cultures, completely different backgrounds, completely different values and ideas. There is no reason that you would want to be together except for Jesus. Our unity as a body comes only from one place, and that is that we all have the same Savior. We all submit to the same Lord we all crown the same king. Now, th this should be fairly obvious, but it does mean, doesn't it, that if you don't trust in the Lord Jesus, if you have not submitted to his authority, well, then you're not actually a part of the body. I'm not going to assume that you're all Christians here this evening. And so you do need to know that you can't be joined to the body unless you're joined to the head. You might like the social side of the meetings. You might like the songs or the values. You might like the fellowship after the meetings. You might like the food. But unless Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, well, then you have no real part in the body of the church. I'm sure I speak for the church here when I say you are very welcome 
at all of their meetings. They are delighted to have you, but please don't make the mistake of thinking that coming along to the meetings somehow makes you a Christian. A church is so much more than a meeting. It is a body, a body that is joined by Jesus. But notice also in these verses that Paul says that this body joined by Jesus needs each part to be working properly. Did you notice that in verse 16, towards the end of verse 16? When each part is working properly. Uh, he fleshes this idea out in a little bit more detail in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, if you wanted something to read uh, later today. Uh, he, he says in that passage, 1 Corinthians 12, that the eyes cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. The head cannot say to the foot, I don't need you. And the average human body has uh, 206 bones, 650 muscles, and 78 organs. Our bodies are incredible, complicated, beautifully designed structures. And yet, in spite of the fact that I have 206 bones and 650 muscles and 78 organs, something as simple as stubbing my toe can leave me, leave me writhing in pain. In 2002, the footballer David Beckham was famously out of action for six weeks because of a broken metatarsal. The head really cannot say to the foot, I don't need you, can it? But one of the most celebrated, talented footballers of a generation brought to a complete stop, unable to play, because of a tiny little bone in his foot. You know, your entire body is relying on that epiglottis, that flappy bit of flesh at the back of your throat, to stop food and liquid going down your windpipe. It, your sense of hearing is completely dependent on this thin little bit of flesh that we call the eardrum. These tiny bits of our body are essential. Remember, though, when Paul says that each part working properly, he's not talking about literal toes and eyes and hands. He's talking about you and me. He's talking about us, our roles within the body of Christ, each part working properly, each person doing their bit. We don't all have the same roles, do we? Some are heads, some are feet, some are hands, some are ankles. I don't know what you are. But the member of the church who can't get out of the house, can't go to any of the meetings, but prays for hours and hours and hours on end each week, they are as much a part of the body as the person who shows up to everything. The member who visits people and shops for people and prays with people but never does any public speaking, they are as much a part of the body as the one who does all the talking. There's another side to this coin, isn't there? Each part working properly 
each doing their bit, but what about the member who's living in sin? The one who's indulging in a life that is contrary to God's word. They're like that broken toe, aren't they? They are slowing the rest of the body down because of their sin. Or what about the member who, out of laziness, just can't be bothered to do anything? It's like when you've cut the blood flow off to your leg and you've got to wait for the pins and needles to pass before you can do anything. Brothers and sisters, or maybe I should call you toes, ears, ankles, elbows, please know your body needs you working properly. If it is to grow, each part needs to be working properly. Let's think thirdly, and finally, the bride of Christ. I told you we were only going to be able to dip our toe into each of these. But, but I hope this is helpful to give us a bit of a, a broader picture of the images of the church. Let's look together at Ephesians 5, verse 25 to 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Husbands, what is your example for how you love your wife? What's the model for how you care and love and cherish your bride as Christ loved the church? Christ's love and devotion to his bride is the model marriage. Christ is the husband that all other husbands should aspire to be like. Now, before we start going off topic and thinking about our marriages, let's focus on that model marriage, the ultimate example of a loving husband. Uh, Paul says in those verses that there are five things that Christ as the perfect husband does. He says Christ loved the church. He gave himself for the church. He is sanctifying the church. He is washing the church in order to one day present the church to himself. We're only going to be able to focus on those first two for now. He loved the church and gave himself up for her. Those two things go together, don't they? You can't separate those two from, from one another. Christ loved the church. Okay, but how did he do that? How did he love the church? Did he just buy flowers or send a card? No, how did Christ love the church? By giving himself for her. That is the expression of his love. His willingness to die for his bride is the way that Christ loved the church. And again, you can't separate these two the other way either, can you? He gave himself up for the church. 
But why did he do that? Was it because he saw something good in us? Was it that he saw something worth dying for in us? No. Why did he give himself up for his church? Simply because he loved his bride. Catherine Kelly writes these words in the hymn, Give Me a Sight, O Saviour. She says, Was it the nails, O Saviour, that bound you to the tree? No. It was your everlasting love, your love for me, for me. Recently, I was reading a sermon by a man named John Flavel. And in this sermon from Flavel, he was talking about what life must have been like for Jesus before he came into this world, before his incarnation. Have you ever thought about that before? Ever considered that? What was it like for the Son of God before the original Christmas? I hadn't thought about that until reading this sermon. But he says, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, enjoying this perfect, loving, happy unity with one another. In his relationship with his Father, there was no sorrow, no pain. Jesus was unacquainted with griefs. He didn't know what poverty was. He'd never experienced the father frowning at him. In fact, it was quite the opposite, wasn't it? God the son, embraced by God the father, experiencing a joy and a delight that is beyond anything we could ever know. A perfect son, a perfect father with a perfect love for one another. It was a completely pure relationship. And Flavel says, think about the consistency of this love. Eternity doesn't have days, does it? But just for the sake of trying to get our heads around it, every day, all the way through eternity, the love never fades. An unchanging, unwavering love. Okay, now, with that thought in your mind, listen to this from Flavel. Adore and be forever astonished at the love of Jesus Christ to poor sinners. That he would ever agree to leave the loving embrace of his father, the inexpressible delights that he had there for such poor worms as we are. Oh, the height, depths, lengths, and breadth of unmeasurable love. Which of you could be persuaded to leave God's embrace for all the riches of the world? I don't think I could be persuaded to leave God's love. And yet, Jesus Christ freely left it and laid down all the glory and riches he enjoyed there for your sake. What kind of love is this? Who has ever loved like Christ loves? Who has ever denied himself the way that Christ denied himself for us? You know, it's, it's easy for us to read these words in Ephesians 5, 25. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Yeah, yeah we know that. What, what's new? You don't know that. 
you don't even realize the half of what that means. You, you have not even begun to scratch the surface of the depth of Christ's love for his bride. And you have no idea how much Paul has packed into that little phrase, gave himself up. He gave up the eternally joyful, loving embrace of his father. He gave up the riches and the majesty of heaven. In exchange for what? He gave himself up to the Jewish authorities who spat on him and mocked him. He gave himself up to the Roman soldiers who nailed him to a cross and left him to die. He gave himself up to the wrath and judgment that should have been poured out on us. He gave himself up for her, for his bride, the church. Can I ask you this evening, do you realize the cost that Christ has paid to purchase his church? Do you realize how precious you are to him? I think often in the midst of all of the grumbles and gripes and all the other sorts of things that face us as a church, we lose sight of this truth, don't we? Christ loved the church to the extent that he gave himself up for her. That's why we gather, isn't it? We meet, we assemble as the church because of the incredible sacrificial love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is why we're part of this body, isn't it? Not because we've got something great to offer, but because Christ has added us to his body simply because of his love and grace. And this is why we serve, why we contribute, why we help with all of our different gifts, with all of our roles to play, each one working properly, responding to the infinite love of Christ. You know, I had a really difficult time trying to decide which of the metaphors to bring to you this evening. But I think so much of who we are and what we do comes back to this truth. We are the bride of Christ. He has loved us with an immeasurable love. He's bought us at the price of his own blood. And his love for his bride is what will preserve us and protect us from this point on through into eternity. When you're worried about the future, remember, you're the bride of Christ. And when you're facing division, remember, you've been loved with that unwavering sacrificial love. When you're tempted to withdraw or to take a back seat, remember the love that drove Jesus to give his life as a ransom for his bride. Yes, the church is a meeting, but it's so much, much more. Let's pray together.
dear Lord, our God and our heavenly Father, we thank you for every opportunity that you give us to gather, to meet together, to encourage each other and to worship you. Lord, we thank you for our, our gatherings. But we thank you, Lord, that we are so much more than simply a group of people who get together once or twice a week. Lord, we thank you that we are a flock who are protected and led by our chief shepherd. Thank you that we are a family and that you have made us brothers and sisters and that we can look to you as our heavenly father. Lord, we thank you that we are a, a temple and a priesthood that, that we can know you living in us. Lord, we thank you so much for that truth that we are your bride. Thank you for the price that you paid. Thank you that we have that perfect husband who laid down his life for us. Shape us, Lord, we pray. Make us more faithful as your church. And we pray, Lord, that the light of the gospel, the truth and the love of the Lord Jesus would shine out from this place uh, and that you would continue to add to your people, that you would continue to save souls out of darkness and bring them into the kingdom of your son. Because Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing our final song, which is, O church, arise and put your armor on. Hear the call of Christ, our captain. Let's sing together.
Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.